unexpected. And, and last week I, I spoke to, you know, such an unexpected service. Today we're going to look at unexpected obedience. And if you remember last Sunday, I, I gave you a challenge. I, I said, I, I want to challenge you to find someone during that, that week, which was last week, to find someone before today that was difficult for you to love, someone that was difficult for you to serve, someone that, that was just uh, maybe more of a challenge and to go out of your way to serve them. And, and I'm just happy to report, I'm not going to say who they are or anything else, but I'm just happy to report to you that when I went to lunch, some members of First Baptist bought my lunch last Sunday. Even better than that, I guess, uh, uh, and they were sure to make sure that you had had no connection to, to the challenge to minister to someone that wasn't very likable. But uh, uh, before we left last Sunday, you know, of course, we have Milton's finest. Uh, we always have a Milton police officer who is here uh, around the campus. You don't see him, which is how we like it. You see him at the end, which is when we do like to see him, getting us out of the parking lot. But, but he's around here. But we also have some, some volunteers who, who, you know, the, the unique thing, a lot of unique things about First Baptist Milton, one of them is this. On any given Sunday, I guarantee you this morning, there are as many, if not more, guns in this place than Bibles. Okay? And I know that. I know that. They, they tend to congregate up there. <laughs> it's, it's where a lot of tend to con I'm not saying they brandish them and let me see them when the sermon gets long or anything. I'm just saying I, I, I know my context. I know where I am. But uh, we also have some, some security guys, some, some people who just rotate on a schedule, and, and they just are, they're out there right now. They're walking around just to make sure we're safe. Well, one of them had security last week, and he came to me after the sermon. He said, Preacher, I don't know what you preached, but five people done told me they're going to serve me this week. <laughs> I said, well, let me tell you what I said. <laughs> and, and he was not as flattered after I explained to him what was said. You know, Jesus was a Messiah. Man, people were expecting a Messiah. The fact that a Messiah came was not surprising. It's the kind of Messiah that Jesus was that surprised everybody. That was unexpected. In fact, it's so much a surprise that many of our Jewish friends who are traditional Jews in their beliefs, they're still waiting for Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah who was promised by God because he did not embody the things that they were looking for in a Messiah. He brought with him several unexpected characteristics and qualities. And that's what we've been looking through these last few weeks are these unexpected things that Jesus brought with him when he was born, that he exemplified as he lived his life and we saw how he came in humility which was certainly unexpected and last week as I've alluded to already we, we saw where he had this unexpected service and today we're going to see where he had this unexpected obedience that he brought with him now there's a passage in Philippians chapter 2 that I think is a great summary of the life of Jesus and uh, that that passage has been shared with you each week where 
Paul tells us to, to have this mind in us, which is also in Christ Jesus, who Jesus, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but it talks in that text in Philippians 2 about all these things that Jesus embodied. And in Philippians 2 and verse 8, it tells us that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedience, his obedience is something that was unexpected. You see, you don't expect the Messiah to receive orders. They were expecting this Messiah to give orders. They were looking for a Messiah who would demand submission from other people to him. They weren't expecting a Messiah who himself would submit his authority and would submit himself to some other authority. And a place where you see Jesus fully surrender in obedience is a place not so much connected to his birth as it is connected to the hours prior to his death. That's why we're going to focus in Matthew chapter 26 today, looking at verses 36 through 44. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36, Then Jesus went with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Notice his words. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Those are words of obedience. Not as I will, but as you will. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to submit to your authority. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. They must have been Baptist. <laughs> and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. That is a statement of submission. That is a statement of obedience. That is a statement of surrender. I will do your will. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We tend to think of Jesus 
defiantly marching toward the cross with a, a great deal of confidence, with a great deal of boldness, and with absolutely no fear or apprehension. But we get a different sense as we read this unbelievably heavy passage that explains an unbelievably heavy event. When you begin to understand the emotions expressed in this text, it seems as if Jesus is experiencing just the opposite of what we might expect him to experience in this moment. He is trembling. He's frantically alternating between God and the disciples, asking God if there's another way. This whole event revolves around the issue of will he be obedient? Will he surrender his will to the will of someone in authority? This experience in Gethsemane, this is a brand new experience for Jesus. Prior to this, when he faced danger, he showed great courage and great resolve. A few chapters prior to Gethsemane, back in Matthew chapter 16, it tells us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He was going to the cross. Shortly after Gethsemane, Jesus stands before Pilate, and there's not one shred of hesitation or reservation or distress, but only resolve. So it brings up the question, what was happening at this moment when his obedience was tested? Of all the times that Jesus faced danger and persecution, why did this moment in which he is called to surrender in obedience, why did this moment cause him so much pain and so much sorrow and so much grief and so much fear? Something interesting is written in this text. Look again at verse 37. It says, It took with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful. Okay, now verse 36 tells us that he's going to pray. Don't miss this. This is setting the stage. Okay, in verse 36, he goes to pray. In verse 37, he began to be sorrowful. That word began means that something started happening then that had yet to happen before. He began he saw something while he was praying, and what he saw shocked him. He began at that moment to be sorrowful. Verse 38, Jesus said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So whatever Jesus saw was so troubling, it was so horrifying, he literally almost died under the strain it produced. 
When Luke in his gospel writes about this incident, Luke was a doctor, and Luke tells us that what caused Jesus so much stress and strain that he literally began to sweat drops of blood. In this moment of the test of his obedience, all these things began to happen. What would cause this? Why is he so troubled? What does this experience where his obedience is tested reveal to us? Thank you for asking those questions because we want to answer them. In fact, I want to point out to you three things that are taking place with the obedience of Jesus in this text that reveals something to us about this man who was born a baby in human flesh, who now is prepared to pay the price for our sins. What does his obedience in this moment reveal to us? Number one's this. The obedience of Jesus reveals to us the high price, the cost of our sins. See, here's the main reason, the main reason, not the only one, but the main reason that Jesus is in such anguish is in this garden, in this moment of his obedience, he is experiencing the horrors of being abandoned and forsaken by the Father because Jesus is preparing to bear our sins and pay the cost of the high price for our sin. And part of that cost, part of his obedience was that he would be forsaken by everyone, even the Father. You see, Jesus had called out to his father numerous times in his life and his father had always responded but now in Gethsemane for the first time in all eternity the son calls out to the father and there is silence did you see in verse 39 that Jesus cried to the father and there was no answer there was no answer to his prayer. And so he, he stumbles back to the disciples looking for some kind of comfort, some kind of assurance. But they're all asleep, totally unaware of the significance of what is happening. So he goes back to the Father in verse 42, and he has the same prayer. And once again, his prayer is met with silence. So he goes back to the disciples, and he feels forsaken because they're sleeping once again. And the third time is not the charm either. He went back in verse 44 and prayed again, and he did not receive a response response. The only explanation for what is happening between the Son and the Father in Gethsemane 
is that God the Father had already begun to turn his face away from the Son. The judgment of our sin had started. Listen, before the first nail was driven into his body, the soul of Jesus was being forsaken by the Father because that's the high cost of our sin. You see, every moment of Jesus' life that was on earth was spent with the approval of God. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up and, and a dove in the form of the Spirit, in the Spirit form of a dove rather, descended from heaven. And a, a bellowing voice from the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But now, in the moment where Jesus needed the presence of the Father the most, God must turn His face away from His Son. And Jesus, in this moment of obedience, staggered under the weight of that moment, almost to the point of death. It is impossible to accurately describe or to illustrate what Jesus is going through in this moment of feeling utterly alone, forsaken, abandoned, and rejected. And again, I don't understand it, but this is my conclusion that somehow in, the, in this moment in Gethsemane, Jesus experienced the equivalent of an eternity in hell for us because complete abandonment by God is the very essence of hell. Did you know that? Hell has torture, hell has pain, hell has fire, etc. And I'm not downplaying that, but what makes hell hell is the fact that God is not there. And as Jesus pays the price or prepares to pay the price for our sin, he feels this abandonment because you know what? If Jesus is not forsaken, you know who has to be forsaken? You and me. But because he was forsaken, we can be forgiven. Because he was forsaken... You and I never have to spend a day in our life separated from the presence of God. We can't comprehend that because we don't even realize how when we walk to and fro in this world, how God's presence is holding it all together. And we don't have to worry about that because there will never be a day that God is not with me because Jesus was obedient. Because he paid the full price for my sin. Don't you ever let anyone downplay the seriousness of sin in your life. And don't you ever downplay how serious sin in your life. Well, I'm not hurting anybody. Nobody else knows what I'm doing. What I'm doing is really not that bad. No, your sin killed the Son of God. 
my sin, put him upon that cross. There is a high price for my sin. It's a price that I cannot pay. And if someone doesn't pay it for me, I'm set to be eternally separated from God. But thanks be to God today that Jesus Christ was obedient where I would not be. And he was obedient in following the plan of his Father. So as God forsook him on the cross, God will never forsake me in my life. That was a good spot for an amen. Y'all totally missed it. So his obedience... Reveals the high price for our sin, firstly. Secondly, the obedience of Jesus reveals the love that he has for sinners. I've, uh, whenever I come to a text, I don't care if, I, if I've read it a hundred times, and you probably know this to be true too, you always, something always sticks out that you didn't notice before. That's why we know, one of the reasons we know that the Word of God is real, that it's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, is that it speaks to us every time we go to it. I was going through this text many years ago, and a thought hit me. Why would the Father give Jesus a sneak peek of what was to come? Because I'm going to tell you right now, if Jesus' name is Jonathan... And the Father reveals to me in that time of prayer that something's about to happen that's going to be so terrible and horrible that I sweat drops of blood. I'm getting out of the deal. <laughs> I'm not praying, not my will but yours be done. I'm going to pray, find somebody else. Why would God <clears throat> give Jesus this sneak peek that revealed the horrors of the cross when he is in Gethsemane. What if Jesus decided to back out? But you see, we are able to know that Jesus went to that cross voluntarily, knowing full well what was about to happen and what he would experience. And the only answer I have for why God would give Jesus a sneak peek is that they both knew, God and Jesus knew, that he was going to surrender in obedience, and he is going to show us how deeply he loves sinners. Knowing that Jesus knows this beforehand, does that not help you better understand the depth of his love for you? The fact that he knew what was going to happen and he chose obedience. He could have chosen disobedience. He is Jesus. The last time I checked, God can do whatever he wants. And yet he chose obedience in that moment. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That'd make a great Bible verse somewhere, wouldn't it? Somewhere around Romans 5.8. That in dying for us, he demonstrates his love for us. But then something remarkable happened within Jesus at this moment of his obedience. When Jesus, he placed himself on his face in Gethsemane. And when Jesus stood up, having made the decision to obey, that face then turned toward the cross and there would be no stopping him. He entered, don't miss this, he entered Gethsemane in great sorrow, distress, and trouble. 
trouble. But by the time he gets to the cross, Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He went from sorrow and pain and fear to enduring that cross with joy. There was joy because something had been set before him. What did Jesus see that he was going to obtain that made the cross not only worth it, but made the cross something to embrace with joy? Think about this. What would Jesus have on the other side of the cross post-crucifixion that he did not have on his side of the cross before the crucifixion? The answer is simple. You. You. Before the cross, Jesus did not have you. There was no price that was paid. But after the cross, it became possible for Jesus to have a relationship with you. Folks, there's some days I don't want a relationship with myself. And yet here Jesus is, knowing I will fail him, knowing I'm a sinner, choosing to be obedient in this moment in his life. Friend, listen to me this morning. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. No one on this earth will love you as deeply as Jesus loves you. No one will ever sacrifice as much for you as Jesus sacrificed for you. He endured Gethsemane because he loves you. He was obedient because he loves you. He was obedient because he wants to spend eternity with you. In his obedience, he revealed his love for sinners. Here's number three. The obedience of Jesus reveals to us that there is only one way to eternal life, and it's through him. Don't miss what, what should be obvious in the text, but sometimes we just glance right over it. Three times, three times, Jesus said, if there is another way to accomplish this other than my obedience, which will lead to a cross, if there's another way, let this cup pass for me. Why did God not answer him? God did not answer him because the answer to his request was that there was not any other way. If there is any other way, let this cup pass for me. God, God doesn't speak because there is no other way for us to have a relationship with God. His prayer was met with silence because Jesus is the other way. There was no other way to save us. That's why Jesus obeyed. He gladly left Gethsemane and joyfully embraced that old rugged cross because salvation is found in one person and his name is Jesus. And I know, I know what I'm about to say, it's not PC, but if you know me, you know that I don't give a flip about being PC. I know that everybody wants to talk about how we can just love each other, and we ought to love each other. That's, a, that's biblical to love each other. 
I'm trying to find the verse that says I got to like everybody, but I'm sure it's in there too. <laughs> and if we just will be kind, and if we can just do this and do that, and, and, and we need to be we need to, we need to do all that. But listen, there is no greater insult to Jesus than to say that there's another way besides Him. Because if there is another way for eternal life, then Gethsemane was a waste. If there's another way to have Jesus other than Jesus, his obedience was offered and it accomplished nothing. The crucifixion was not needed and the empty tomb is nothing but a sham. But his obedience in this garden teaches us that there is only one way to eternal life and it's through him. But it's, this narrative's not here just to show us what Jesus did for us in his obedience. But it's also here to show us how we should respond to what Jesus has done for us. For you see, in that group of disciples, and we don't have time to read the text, but you can read on down further into Matthew chapter 26 and and there was a disciple. I remember last week that disciple who was like, Jesus, you ain't washing my feet, you fool. And then Jesus, and then Jesus was like, I have to wash you. And this disciple was like, then wash my head, feet, shoulders, under my arms, everywhere else. That disciple's name was who? Peter, right, Peter. Peter, we, we, we know Peter had a mouth big enough for both feet, right? Because he always had both feet in his mouth. And Peter responds to this. And if you look later at the text, what it tells us is that Peter took out his sword and cut off the ear of those people, one of those people who came to arrest Jesus. Peter did not understand his own condition. See, when Peter drew that sword, he's identifying himself as one of the good guys whose task it is to execute judgment on one of the bad guys who showed up. And when Jesus responded to Peter, Jesus said, Peter, put up your sword. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, there are no good guys. Peter, I can't save you or anyone else if I use a sword of judgment right now. Jesus is saying, the only way I can save you is if I am slain by the sword of judgment. Hang with me for just... Five, ten more minutes. <laughs> the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve are kicked out of a garden after their sin. And God puts in front of that garden an angel with a flaming sword to guard the entrance to that garden of Eden. And now, in a different garden. Jesus, who has a right to use that sword, steps forward not to use it, but to take it instead. Jesus was slain by that sword in our place. You see, in not understanding his own condition, Peter didn't understand the gospel of substitution. Peter still believed in the gospel of self-salvation. And when you think 
that you are or you can become a good enough person who doesn't need someone else to save you. You will always do what Peter did. You will always bear a sword against others and you will always look down on others in judgment. For you see, most of us, we are not like Jesus. Most of us are like Peter in this way. We see the world as two groups of people, the good people and the bad people, the good guys and the bad guys. And whatever group you're in, that's the good group. And the other group is the group of the bad guys. And you want to wield a sword of judgment on them because they are not good. Listen to me this morning. The Bible makes it very clear. There, there is no you and there is no them. There is only us. And we all together are bad people who sit under the wrathful judgment of God, which means that none of us deserves to bring a sword of judgment against someone else. The only one who could have justly used that sword against us and stood under it instead. Jesus did not just die for you. Jesus died instead of you. Jesus died in your place. That is why we sing that we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of Nazarene and we wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean. That is why we sing for me it was in the garden. He prayed not my will but thine that he had no tears for his own griefs but he sweat drops of blood for mine. That is why we sing that he took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. That he bore my burden to Calvary where he suffered and he died alone. And in his obedience we find freedom. And this gift of salvation cannot be achieved. It can only be received. And my question to you this morning is have you received it? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, not of works. It's the gift of God, so that no one may boast. Jesus was obedient, unexpectedly so, in order to bring you into a relationship with him. Do you have that relationship today? In just a second, we're going to pray. And after we pray, we're going to have a time of commitment. This is a time simply for you to respond to the Holy Spirit, to what He has placed on your heart today. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. There are no hoops for you to jump through. There are no acts of sacrifice for you to provide. Jesus has done all that for you. He simply wants you to cry out to him and ask him. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. So if you've never made that decision in your life to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, in these next few minutes as I pray for all of us, would you pray for yourself and would you simply cry out to God and would you just just ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. 
which, which you confess to him and, and agree with him. He's, he said that we're all sinners, and, and would you agree with him in that? Would you confess your sin to him, to him? And would you in that prayer repent of that sin? That's just a word that means you, you ask God to change your heart, and, and your desire is going to be to change from, from serving sin to serving a Savior. Would you simply ask him to be your Lord and Savior? He was obedient so he could have that relationship with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you have asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. I say it often from behind this pulpit, and I plan to continue saying it week after week after week. My only ask for you as you follow Jesus will simply be to put your yes on the table. What God puts on that table by it, that's God's business. Your job's to put your yes on that table, to be obedient to what God's calling you to do. If you have questions about that, if you need to talk to someone about that, we have people who are ready. When we had this time of commitment, you come down and say, Pastor, I need to talk to someone about being saved. We'll get you to someone to talk about your salvation. This altar is open for your prayers. Whatever God's calling you to do, would you simply say yes to him today? Father God, as we come before you this morning, we are so thankful that you were obedient for us. And that through your obedience, we can have a relationship with you. And we can have deep fellowship with you. Father, I pray right now in this moment, whatever you have placed upon our hearts, whatever your Holy Spirit has spoken to each heart in this room. Would you help us to trust and obey? There really is no other way for us to find happiness, contentment, satisfaction in our relationship with you than to trust you and to follow you. As you call us today, may we respond by saying yes. In the good name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.